Continuing then in John's Gospel, we've come from the triumphant entry last week. Uh, I really appreciated Dean Buchanan, uh, Buchanan's ministry with us. Uh, it's nice to look at Palm Sunday in October. I think it was good for us because I think it set it in its context. And as he said, it was minus the cute palm leaves and children running about that we so often love on a Palm Sunday. So we're going to come to the next portion of Scripture, which is John 12 from verse 20. And we're going to be reading 16 verses this morning uh, down to verse 36. And our heading in the Scriptures is, Some Greeks Seek Jesus. So reading John 12 from verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come and gather this morning, that we come and we sit under your word. We ask, Lord, would you speak to us? Would it be your words, not mine? And from this text, Lord, would we see the glory of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior? Amen. So we, we've come from the, the triumphant entry. I think next we, we see Mark 11, verse 17, which is, I guess, the second cleansing of the temple. Uh, I know in some circles that might be a bit controversial to say, but it says, Mark eleven seventeen, 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, um, is it not written, my house shall be called uh, a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Uh, this idea, Jesus is going to the temple again. He's 
massively disgruntled at what he sees going on in the temple. And, and I'm reminded, I think it's within that context that the Greeks come to see Jesus, but I'm reminded of the universal nature of the gospel of the Lord Jesus as we first open this in the fact that our encounter in the scriptures today is the Greeks. We're reminded, of course, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Fabulous. We're reminded that Christ came for God so loved the world. The Samaritans identify Jesus as the Savior of the world. John 6 tells us that Jesus gave his life for the world and to the world. And John 8, of course, reminds us he is the light of the world. That this is a Jesus that is coming for the world. And I think it's very deliberate that John gives us the Greeks here. We are coming very, very close to the end of the life, uh, the earthly life here of our Lord Jesus. And the Greek, the Gentiles were there at the beginning when Christ was born. We see them here now before the death of the Lord Jesus. And I think it's important because it can be so easy for us as New Testament people to take the universal nature of the gospel for granted. That this is something that has, has always been, and, and it's obviously all we have known, but it is, in fact, the work of the Lord Jesus, and this is a lot of what he talks about here, that there are other sheep outside the, the Jewish fold who are going to be gathered and welcomed in. So we come then to these, these first couple of verses, and what we find is the desire of these Greeks that come. These Greeks were coming to, to, to worship, they were coming to the festivals, they weren't merely just curious, but I think they were God-fearers. They attended the synagogue, they, they wanted to know the truth, and here they come to, to, to see Jesus. You might recognize these words of verse 21, the translation here reads, sir, we wish to see Jesus. These are words that I look at frequently, not in any form of metaphorical or spiritual sense, but because it's the words that are written on the pulpit of this church. Sir, we would see Jesus. I'm sure there's a wonderful story of how this scripture became the words that are inscribed on here, but it's a reminder for me that every time I open this book, this is the goal, this is the purpose of gospel ministry, this is the purpose of teaching in the local church, is that we would see Jesus. It's what these gathering Greeks wanted to see. They wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to see this man. They wanted to hear from this man because they knew he had something important to say. But it's also the reason that you're gathered this morning. You are gathered this morning because you want to see Jesus. You want to know him. You want to hear from him. And the disciples are asked this very simple question. Show us Jesus. So this crowd come to Philip and Philip goes to Andrew and Andrew goes and gets Jesus. I'm sure you, I'm sure you remember with great clarity the sermon I preached on the 6th of February this year uh, when I introduced this to this character, this man of Andrew. Andrew, the man that is known as the brother of Simon Peter, he brings his brother to Jesus. There was three points there. He brought his brother to Jesus. He brought the young boy with the loaves and the fish to Jesus. And he brought the Greeks to Jesus. Andrew's a good guy. We like Andrew. Andrew brings people to Jesus. 
And it is, I guess, this, this Andrew-like role of bringing people to Jesus that is fundamental to the church. It is the primary role of elders in the life of the church to teach. It is gospel proclamation. It is showing Jesus. I think the primary call of elders, pastors, is to teach that we might know and see Jesus, that we might see his glory, that in turn we might be transformed by his spirit into his likeness. I also think this is a benchmark for a sermon. Have you seen Jesus this morning? That is the the primary function of all of this, of of the spirit, is to illuminate Christ to us in the pages of Scripture. Now, it's quite easy for me to preach from John 12 and show you Jesus. There are passages, many passages, the majority of the Old Testament that are significantly harder for us to see Jesus. But nevertheless, it is important, it is vital that we would see Jesus as we look the Scriptures. So I wonder then as we open, do you come this morning with the same desire as our Greek friends? Do you come this morning to see Jesus? Do you desire to see him this morning? Do you desire to meet with him? Andrew wasn't, I don't think, particularly an expert in taking people to Jesus. I just think he loved Jesus and he was passionate about showing Jesus to people. It's not that in any sense I'm a good preacher and have any form of newfound revelation of any sort of truth. But we gather to see Jesus because this is alive. And the God of this world is alive. And he is revealed to us in these pages. So by gathering this morning, your question to me is, Jonathan, show us Jesus. Let us see Jesus. Let us hunger for Jesus. Let us know Jesus. So that's the context of where we find ourselves, this question from the Greeks. And Jesus then has this blank canvas, really, to share what he would share. And he shares verse 23 with them to start. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Way back in John 2, Jesus at the wedding with his mother, my hour has not yet come. John 7, when the disciples are trying to get him to go to the Feast of Booth, Jesus says, my time has not yet come. And here in John 12, the hour has come. This is the turning point of this gospel. We have now hit the point where Jesus says, okay, now is the time. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Not yet, not yet, not yet. Okay, now. Now is the time. And it was a conversation with these Greeks that led him to share these words. So what is it time for? What time has come? Well, for God to be glorified. That is the time that has come. So we come then to the glory of the mission of Christ, the glory of Christ's mission in this section here. Jesus is glorified in his death. It is a statement that on an earthly level that makes virtually no sense to us, but in a spiritual sense, 
as we read the life of Jesus, the work of God before the incarnation, as we come all the way through this into the pages that will follow this, we know that Christ is glorious even at death. He tells us that himself there. Do you know, Christ was never more glorious than when he was nailed to the cross of Calvary. And what I find utterly perplexing about that is that the Lord eternally exists and has always existed and existed with heavenly beings in heaven. That's glorious. Heaven is glorious. Those words of Revelation 4, the living creatures that will surround him, that will say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We have that picture of those 24 elders that will lay down their crowns before the throne of God and will cry, worthy are you, Lord and God. You will receive glory and honor and power for you, created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We're given this magnificent picture of heaven. This is the eternal reality of God, and he would forsake that for a time, the Lord Jesus. To walk amongst us as a man. And as a man, he would be glorified. Because I don't think even that picture in Revelation 4 is as glorious as the Lord Jesus coming and conquering death and hell. And when he bowed his head and said, it is finished. What, a more, what more of a glorious moment could there possibly be? This reality of praise and worship is, is God's eternal reality. But the Son would take that time to come into earth as a man and would do a work only he could do, and through that he would be glorified. He leads us then, the Lord Jesus, into this image of this grain of wheat that falls to the earth and dies and bears fruit. I think what, what he's saying here is that the, the, the great spiritual truth, that there is no glory without suffering. There is no fruitfulness without death. There is no victory without surrender. In itself, a seed, of course, this grain is, is weak. It is pretty useless. And when it's planted, it dies. But as it dies, it becomes fruitful. It's no longer a seed, it is now, or a grain, it is now a plant, it is now something. There's something beautiful about when that seed dies, and when its fruitfulness, its purpose is seen. The only way for this, a seed or a grain to, to, to produce its goal is to be planted. And I think in the same way, we as Christians are like seeds both small and insignificant, but containing life, containing God's life. However, that life can never be fulfilled if it isn't met with being planted, with surrendering ourselves to God. The only way for us to have a fruitful life is to follow the Lord Jesus in his death, his burial, and his resurrection and I think it comes with that question of, will you let God plant you? Will you let God use you for his glory? Because it takes surrender. It isn't easy. 
But I think in these words, Jesus is challenging us to surrender our lives to him. Why? Because he surrendered his life for us. Notice the contrasts that sit within these verses right here. Loneliness versus fruitfulness. Losing your life versus keeping your life. Serving ourselves and serving Christ. Pleasing ourselves and receiving God's honor. I've said it time and time and time again in John's gospel that Jesus divides. And Jesus does divide. There are those who love him and follow him. There are those who do not. And the decisive moment in that division is coming. And this is just an outworking of it. You look at that list, friends, and those comparisons that the Lord Jesus gives us. Where do you want to be? Our Lord Jesus knew, of course, what he was facing. He knew the suffering and the death that was ahead of him. I'm not quite sure when this passage is. There's thoughts that this is merely hours before the upper room uh, that we are literally within the last day before the Lord Jesus would take to the cross. And Jesus is deeply troubled now. As we come to verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. This is my purpose. I know this is my purpose, Father. I'm clinging to this purpose because this is utterly overwhelming right now. Jesus is bearing his heart for us here. We are seeing the, the overwhelming of the human nature of the Lord Jesus, of what is about to stand in front of him. I'm sure, friends, I don't need to press too hard to, for you to remember those times, maybe recently, maybe at present, maybe a while ago, when we are overwhelmed with emotion. Those times when we can become so overcome with with fear or dread, when our palms go stiff and sweaty, our stomachs turn. This is what's happening to Jesus here in verse 27. My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. It is astonishing, isn't it? It is astonishing that this is the words of the man who holds all of creation in his hands. That this is the man who healed lepers with a touch. That this is the man that with words cast demons into the sea. And that this is also the man that would walk through the crowd that were intent on killing him. But despite all of that, what he faced was so great, it put his soul into turmoil. It can be easy for us to look at the cross to look at the physical pain of our Lord Jesus, his bare back against that wood, the, the nails driven through the nerves in his hands, the agony it would have taken of every breath. But what he feared, what he knew was coming was so much greater. Men have faced physical pain to similar levels and I'm sure greater. I'm sure folks have endured and history more prolonged pain than the Lord Jesus did physically on that cross. But in just a short while, the Lord Jesus would bear the sins of the world and he would suffer separation from the Father. That is why his soul is in turmoil. For our sake he made him who, uh, to be sin who knew no sin. All of it, friends. All of the sin, all of the injustice, the curse of the world poured upon 
our Lord Jesus. Galatians 3.13, he became the curse. And the words that follow, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. We see the soul of our Lord Jesus bared in front of us in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus on his knees crying to the Father, Lord, if there is another way, if there is another way, Lord, show me. Christ is glorified in his mission to save sinners. So too is the Father. I'm not going to spend too long in this, but verses 28, 30, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. As the Father and Son are one, both are glorified. The Father is glorified in the incarnation of the Son, his coming into the world. And soon the Father too will be glorified in the death and the resurrection of his Son. So there we have the glory in the Lord Jesus of, of, of what is here, in almost the here and now of this mission. But he then gives us from verse 31 onwards the glory of what is to come. And I just want to list these out. Verse 31, God glorifies himself by judging the world on the cross. Now is the judgment of the world. Now. Not just at the end of history, but the day of judgment comes with the death of the Lord Jesus. Let me give us a couple of scriptures. We'll jump back into John 5 just for a moment that shows us this verse. 27 of John 5. And God, um, and God has given Jesus authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Verses 28 and 29. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And back in verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now is the judgment of the world. Here comes the decisive, the dividing line between the free and the condemned. Here is our Lord Jesus about to draw that line in the sand with his own life. If you trust Jesus, you are united to him. You are united to him in his death. And if you don't trust Jesus, you stand condemned by both your sin and your rejection of the offer of forgiveness that the Lord Jesus freely holds in front of you. Do not ever reject that. If there is anything in life I would ever urge you to do, it is not to reject the offer of forgiveness that the Lord Jesus would hold before you. God glorifies himself by bringing this final judgment into history that his son would bear the condemnation for our sin with his life for all who would believe. Secondly, verse 31 again, God glorifies himself by casting out 
the ruler of this world, Satan. Now the ruler of the world be cast out. In what sense is Satan cast out? We know that Satan remains active very much in this world. The New Testament, in a lot of senses, is our manual to equip us with how to withstand Satan. We know from our own life experiences that death and pain and hurt and everything that goes with that is very much a reality for us. In a couple of chapters' time, in John 14, Jesus says, The ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me. We know that in John 13, in the final hours, Satan entered Judas in those final hours. We really have this picture here that Satan is now putting up his final fight against the Lord Jesus. That he is now trying so hard. He's trying so hard to destroy him. He's trying so hard to destroy his faith and obedience. He is so desperate to undermine the whole work of salvation. And the good news this morning, he failed. And in failing, he is judged and decisively defeated. Jesus didn't give in. Jesus kept entrusting himself to God. Even to the end, even to this point, he did not sin. And because of that, he bore our sin. He stripped Satan of the one weapon that he could use. And that is a valid accusation of unforgiven sin. But Jesus took it from his hands. He is disarmed. Satan has nothing. There is now no unforgivable sin. The blood of Jesus covers our sins. All of them. Therefore, it is the cross that defeats Satan. And that victory is ours through faith in the Lord Jesus. That's why we read Revelation 12, 11, They have conquered by the blood of the Lamb. It is the blood of the Lamb that we were singing about that strips Satan of the one weapon he may use to condemn us, which is our unforgiven sin. Our case is settled, friends. The Lord Jesus paid that price. Our judgment is past. There is now no accusation against the believer that can stand because the Lord Jesus took it at the cross of Calvary. And through that we see in verse 32, where I am lifted from the earth, all people will be drawn to myself. It means that when Christ died, as he was lifted up on that cross, he secured it, he obtained it, he guaranteed it, he guaranteed the homecoming of his sheep. He guaranteed the gathering of his children. You see, his death not only makes possible the salvation of all people, but his death secured it with the certainty that all the sheep that are given to him would be brought in. 
John 11:52, we read of the children who were scattered abroad, those who were far drawn in. And finally, verse 36, God glorifies himself by shining as the light of the world and the lives of those who believe in Jesus. Here is where all of this becomes very personal for you and for me. God's glory is revealed for us to treasure. A couple of weeks ago, as we looked at the offering of the oil of Mary, we looked at her offering that was substantial and sacrificial. It was one that seriously cost her. But we saw a worship that despite Judas and the others saying, woman, what on earth are you doing? Mary would publicly and lavishly worship Jesus. Friends, what is our response to this Lord Jesus that we are given to treasure? Revealed to us here in what is coming, in what Jesus is pointing to is that the world is judged, Satan is cast out, and the homecoming of all believers is secured. The question then, is will you trust the Lord Jesus with this? Will you treasure it? Will you meditate on it? Will you make it the rock of your life? This blood-bought gift of reconciliation to your creator. Does your heart say, I believe that my judgment is over? that it has passed from death to life? Do you believe that Satan has absolutely no claim on you because he has been cast out of that courtroom because the Lord Jesus paid the price? And do you believe that the price that the Lord Jesus paid to purchase you now means you are not your own and you belong to him? If you believe this, friends, he says in verse 36, you don't just see the light of Christ, you become children of the light. This means that you share in his bright and his holy nature. While you have the light, belief in the light, that you might become sons of light. You see, friends, we don't just come to see the glory of the Lord Jesus. But we also come that we might shine forth the glory of Jesus to this world. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we so struggle to fathom this. We so struggle to fathom the Father, you would send your one and only Son to die for us. We worship you that you did. We worship you, Lord Jesus, that you came, that you withstood every attack of Satan so that our slates might be wiped clean. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you are the light of our life. 
Help us, Lord, to live lives worthy in response to that. Lives as children of the light, as you ask of us. Amen.